0: What's the biblical view of the afterlife? Or better yet, the after-afterlife. This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here with Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell. This year on the podcast, we've been looking at what the Bible actually says about some widely held Christian teachings. So we've looked at the New Exodus theme behind the well-known Lord's Prayer, and then we explored a more accurate understanding of words like gospel and faith. So today we're going to keep on that same track by discussing what the Bible really teaches about our personal hope after we die. So as we keep saying on this podcast, Christian tradition is super good, super important, But we always need to be willing to test it against the text of the Bible to make sure that we're on the right track. We get our story from the scriptures, so no matter how long we or our group has held our traditions, the Bible is always the test of whether or not we're telling the story accurately. So today, our goal is to take a closer look at what the New Testament tells us about our future hope, both what happens immediately when we die and also what the ultimate hope of the universe actually is. Because as it turns out, those are actually two separate things.
1: Yeah, that's good, Alex. And I um, was thinking about the culture that I grew up in, in the deep South. And, you know, all of the Bible's messages was kind of encapsulated into three statements. It was all about the blood and the book and the blessed hope. <laughs> and um, nice. you'd see it on billboards and on church stationery, etc. cetera. Uh, but The assumption there was that the blessed hope was all wrapped up in a single statement. It was all about going to heaven. And, you know, that's not just only true in the Deep South. I think this is kind of universally the way we think about the blessed hope, that the key word and the key location has been heaven. And, you know, we don't have time in this episode to explore the church history behind this um but suffice to say that as christianity moved you know out from the land of israel geographically and into the wider world it also tended to move away from jewish thinking about our our future our future hope and you know the jews understanding um was always based on the idea of a land that would be restored a land of milk and honey that eden would be restored It had nothing to do with being, you know, whisked away somewhere. And so um, the Jewish background, which, you know, is even present there in the New Testament, was always earth-centered. And that is the promise of God's work of blessing would be expressed in the renewal of the land and Israel's place in it. And they saw the coming of the Messiah as... Bringing God's reign back to earth, you know, end of the story. But you know, as the story of Jesus began to travel around the Roman Empire, it ran smack into a a different view of future hope, and there were all different versions among the pagans. Uh, You know, in Greek thinking, you went to the underworld, or you went to Elysium, or to Elysium Fields, but one thing was was true of all of these different uh ancient stories none of them had anything to do with the resurrection of the body or this new or renewed um creation in fact it was very difficult in the first century for paul and other early teachers to get this across to these early christians and paul mentions this actually in his first letter to the corinthians where he explicitly addresses um, to the Corinthians, the objection that many of them had, that there is no resurrection of the dead. They just couldn't wrap their minds uh, about that. And so even in the first century, this idea of not only the resurrection of the individual, but a resurrection of the entire cosmos, um, that was being challenged.
2: Yeah. So then as church theology like developed from that point on, I think this cultural pressure came to bear on it more and more, and the church came to express the future hope, especially with the language of heaven. Eternal life began when you died and went to heaven, so the end game of salvation was viewed as leaving this place and going to another place. It wasn't always well thought out in detail. For example, sometimes the vision for heaven included resurrection but other times it didn't. When you read different you know, uh, church fathers and the theologians of the Middle Ages, um, there was variety in those viewpoints. Some versions of the Christian hope simply thought in terms of disembodied spirits living forever with God in heaven. So this is, I think, what most of us have inherited, the idea that salvation is all about making sure you get to heaven when you die, our evangelism plans and presentations typically make this the specific goal of Christianity, getting people to heaven. I know this is certainly what I grew up with. Um, but the scriptures actually describe things differently. So today we're going to address the description in two main parts because that's how the New Testament frames it for us. Yeah, I think that
0: two part idea is so crucial to this. And it's really the big paradigm shift, I think, that. That all of all three of us have undergone, and uh, and so we're going to go mm-hmm. through each of those two different stages and describe kind of how what what each of them entails and how they relate to each other. And we're actually going to start with the second most, I guess, most final stage. We're going to start with that part first because the long term goal is clearly about the return of Jesus as King and the resulting new creation that comes from that. Like that's the end game. It's what NT Wright calls. Life after life after death. So, we're going to talk about that Mm. first. And then, after that, we'll talk about the big question of what happens in the meantime. We think that it's important to start with the big ending because that's clearly where the emphasis of the New Testament is. Like it talks much more about that than what we'll call maybe the, the intermediate phase. So, it's the ultimate ending at the new appearance of Jesus that matters the most in this whole dynamic, this whole story. And it's really At the end of the day, what we're all waiting for, including as we'll talk about in a few minutes, even those people who have already died.
1: Yeah, guys. I think in this this whole series about faith and the gospel, uh, one of the things that hopefully is is been communicated clearly that the grand goal of this entire story of the Bible can be described as God reclaiming His entire creation. So Jesus the Messiah makes the great sacrifice and in so doing, he takes on the reality of sin and its consequences, not just consequences for the individual, but consequences for the entire universe and a, and a universe that is you know governed by, by death and ruled by death. And so, you know, the New Testament tells us Jesus has won this battle. The great reversal of sin and death has started now, it's in motion. And his own resurrection is described as the first fruits, meaning that this is the first of like an entire harvest of resurrection that is coming. And the resurrection of people, of humans, is only the beginning of God's, you know, great new gift of life. And what the Bible describes, much grander, much more glorious, much bolder, um, is extending, you know, to the entire creation. And that's what's coming. And you know, Paul, you know, the consummate theologian so eloquently expresses that when he says in Romans that the whole creation has been groaning, you know, uh-huh. under the under the weight of you know, what we might call the second law of thermodynamics that fundamentally everything is on a downward trend and it's affected humans and animals and birds and the fish in the sky and, and the plant life, which all, you know, we've all come to accept this as normative, right? This is just how, how the universe, universe works. And, Uh um, I I was thinking about this the other day because I, you know, somebody had posted on social media that their dog had died. And you know my my first impression, you know, I don't know what this says about me, but it was kind of like <laughs> suck it up, you know. It was a dog, uh,
2: you know, or, or a cat. Oh, really, Paul! I think Paul, uh, these, these are family members. You don't know what it's like for it's these. The owner people. of two
0: dogs. I'm offended, but feel free to continue.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you. But I mean, I think that's what Paul was getting at, right? He was talking mm. about the great groaning. And which is that we live in, in, in this soup, in this mix where everything around us, um, you know, is dying. And, and, you know, the, the glory of what we're talking about here, this, this blessed hope is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross has cosmic, you know, results. And, you know, Paul talks about very clearly in Colossians in that hymn of Christ. And, uh, He says, you know, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace uh, through the through his blood, you know, shed on the cross. And that's kind of the part of the story that seems to get left out as the all things.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, this is fascinating because. We're so used to saying that Jesus died for me, right? That the blood of the cross is for my salvation. But here Paul emphasizes that the coming big redemption is, is huge. It's as big as the entire creation. So the blood of the cross is for the universe. So it's not the way we normally say it. Now, this doesn't negate our personal salvation, of course. It just frames it within the larger picture. Okay, so the first piece of this is creation. Salvation, both equally big, right? Okay, now we're going to look at one of the evangelistic messages of Peter in the early parts of the book of Acts. In this scene, we see the first steps of the new church right after Jesus has risen from the dead and then ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the believers. And so then the disciples start telling others what the story of Jesus is and what it means. It's the birth of the church. So Peter's speech goes like this in one part. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive Him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. Okay, so Peter tells the story this way The death and resurrection of Jesus has ushered in the time of God's blessing to the nations. The necessary first step is for you to give your allegiance to Jesus as the King appointed by God, which we talked about a few weeks ago, of course, with Matthew Bates. This gospel announcement needs to be made to all peoples on earth. In the meantime, Jesus has ascended to heaven as the powerful and rightful Lord and ruler of the world. So here's the timeline. It's when Jesus appears to us on earth again that times of refreshing, as Peter calls it, will come. And that's the time when God will restore everything. The work of Jesus on the cross to reconcile everything in heaven and on earth to God will be completely implemented when Jesus returns. Then we will see the whole creation transformed into what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, it's it's
0: such a bigger vision and, and an all-encompassing scope. And I think it's mm. a lot of that as well. What- yeah gets left out in the traditional um, Christian story, I guess, traditionally what we present as um, our ultimate hope. So so we can see this big all-encompassing scope and and what will happen at the return of Jesus. It doesn't ex- explicitly say, I don't think in that passage what exactly happens to the humans, to the human beings who have both who are alive when it happens and who who have passed away. Um right. so so here is where Paul's first letter to the Corinthians uh, speaks clearly to that question. So this is what he says Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Like this is so cool. So we see all this stuff of all these different elements of our future hope coming together. There's this first mm-hmm. Adam who introduced death into the world. And now the second Adam will completely, completely defeat death and raise his people up from the grave. So Just like Peter's speech, Paul says it will happen when he comes. So resurrection to new, immortal, undying bodies is our destiny. It's our future. And it will happen at the end of the present evil age.
2: So interesting. You know, it's worth mentioning explicitly. I mean, it was clear in what you just said, Alex. But um, just this week at church, I heard someone talking about how a family member had died on Easter Sunday a week before right? And said, yeah, so her resurrection happened on Easter. And I thought, Mm. I didn't say anything, you know, you don't want to, you know, mess with that in the moment. But I thought that's not when resurrection happened. Resurrection (laughs) happens clearly in the scriptures. Right. Does she have her body? Right. It, It says right here, Paul writes Christ first, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. And I think Christians are just unclear on the details of all this, Um, because the church hasn't done a good job of making it clear according to the teaching of the New Testament. We just kind of let people go with all kinds of things, and they're just trying to put it together in their own minds. So to sum this all up, I think the three big takeaways about the New Testament's teaching on life after life after death are that this renewal is comprehensive and cosmic, number one. It happens when Jesus openly returns as king, number two. And then for his people, it means that their own resurrection from the dead to share in God's new world will happen on that timeline, number three. So those are the three main components of what we get from the New Testament about the final goal of our salvation, the end of the story, if you will. This is the big hope for the future. It's the only ending, really, I think, to the Bible story that is a fitting conclusion to a narrative that all along has been about creation, rebellion, and then the defeat of evil, leading to restoration and renewal. Our typical language of dying and going to heaven as a spirit that is separated from the physical body just does not fit the bill of a big enough redemption. It doesn't do justice to God's love and his intention for his creation of God that, that God is doing through Christ a much bigger, grander thing. And that's what we're all ultimately hoping for, waiting for. And that's what we should talk about the most.
1: I mean, I think we're um, hosting this episode because all of us um, have some regrets that we didn't hear more about this bigger, grander story. Mm Uh, as we were, we were growing up in the church and, you know, I mentioned growing up in the deep South. Uh, I also grew up in the age of gospel tracts. Yep. <clears throat> and uh, if you think about those, they were, they were hyper individualized and the ones that I read, you know, there was usually at some point in the track, there was a vision of a, of a celestial being sitting on a throne. And you know, some poor schmuck is standing before the, th- the throne, trembling. And this we were told was the good news,
2: yeah, right, <laughs> of, uh, right.
1: of of the gospel. <laughs> yep. And um, and you know, no wonder um, people are, are confused. Uh, no wonder people outside the church don't know about this bigger hope or associate it with Christianity because we really haven't even made it clear enough within mm. uh, the church. So um, anyhow, this has been a good conversation, but guys, we'd be remiss if, if we didn't ask the big question, then what does happen to us? What happens to Christians immediately after we die, you know, before the resurrection of the dead? What about life after death? Um, are we going to heaven When we die, is that a good way of expressing it or not? And I I think the first crucial thing that we need to say about that is that the New Testament barely mentions this part of the story. Mm. And, you know, since the strong emphasis is really on the end game, the returning presence of Jesus, our resurrection, the arrival of a glorious, all-encompassing new creation. And so, you know, this this interim state is just not a significant teaching in the Bible because it's not the main point. It's yeah. uh, it's not the goal. And so it isn't it isn't described in detail.
2: Yeah, it's yeah, ironic crazy. That, that, just oh, go ahead. Alex. I was just,
0: well, probably going to say the same thing. Just crazy. <laughs> just thinking about uh, what you were talking about a little bit, Paul, sort of the evangelistic model of knocking on a strange per- stranger's door and asking them, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know exactly what would happen to you in that moment? Like, that's kind of what the crux of evangelism has been yeah. for so long. And the New Testament hardly says anything about it in reality. It's just kind of crazy to me.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say it's ironic that we've made it the centerpiece of our hope. The way everyone would associate that with Christianity is that moment when you die and go to heaven or not right? And the New Testament doesn't spend a time and attention there, and it has this other huge thing in the story, and we don't talk about that. That's just strange, I think. Um, I think what's happened here is that since the church's tradition has not been clear about these two stages to our future hope, people have just filled in the first stage with everything they ultimately want. So we mm-hmm. get people saying all kinds of things about what it's like in heaven, I mean, all you have to do is listen to contemporary Christian music and you get the picture. There's, there's a lot of heaven songs, right? And people are filling in all kinds of details, um, dancing around the throne, family reunions, no offense, Paul, but playing golf. Right? All these favorite yeah, we, activities. We, we, all,
1: we always heard it as kind of like an eternal church service, which oh, yeah, kind
2: of, yeah. that's what made me tremble.
0: Right. I was going to say, if, if there's no tears in heaven, I don't know how you could play golf up there. It seems just <laughs> uh, totally at odds with yeah, each other.
2: Right. So yeah. the thing is, though, if we're supposed to get our story from the Bible, we have to say that none of that is actually in the scriptures. And I don't think we're supposed to be free to just make up things in the Christian story. Um, But at the same time, when there's a lack of detail, right, I understand the urge to do that. When I lost my wife Jane last summer, right, I was looking for Mm. some reassurance about her. I mean, I I wanted to know that she was fine, that her suffering from the leukemia was over. So I completely understand this impulse to fill in more gaps about heaven than we really know, right? Like what's happening to my loved ones right now? But that doesn't mean that I can just speculate and that whatever I make up in my mind is accurate or warranted. I mean, I've had to personally struggle with where do I get my story from, right, with my own wife. Um, Mm. And so I get it. I mean, I get the impulse. um, But I also want to be faithful to the scriptures. So one of the things I think it's also worth mentioning here is that when people think about what heaven is... They oftentimes easily conflate teachings about the new creation at the end with the current situation in heaven. For example, when people think in terms of streets of gold or gates of pearl, right, they are taking images from the picture of the new Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation. But the text says this is what is revealed at the very end, at the return of Jesus. It doesn't say it's a description of what heaven is now. Not to mention the fact that revelation, of course, is apocalyptic literature, and these are symbolic visions anyway, not literal descriptions, so I think our whole deal with heaven is we just have to commit as a church to listen more closely to what the scriptures actually teach and and I think it'll be a more rewarding picture that actually emerges
0: I think it is a big takeaway that. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about mm. heaven, but it does have a little bit—or maybe not heaven. That's not really the right—the right word. Our immediate afterlife, I guess, yeah. it doesn't have a whole right. lot to say about that. Um, but it has a little bit to say, hints and clues, I guess we could say. Sure. Um, and and I think there's three things that we'll we'll get into here. So the first thing is the word that's consistently used to describe those who have died is that they are asleep. So we see Jesus use this language. We see the, we see it in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul talks about it. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And then in Acts, uh, it's telling the story of the martyr Stephen. And it says, while they were stoning, stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, "That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep." So there's there's several examples of this in the New Testament, and it's consistent language. So whatever else we learn, first we have to fully account for the fact that the Bible says that they're asleep. It's kind of a mystery, I would say, uh-huh. what exactly this means, because um, the exact meaning is never explained. But we do have to acknowledge that it does mean something. Maybe it's kind of imagery or uh, you know a, a descriptor of what happens maybe the best thing that we can say here is that dead people are quietly resting which of course fits with the traditional blessing that they should rest in peace
2: yeah just on that point i just insert one comment here i mean the bible could have said right well all these people are now fully alive and awake like they've never been before Right, right, right. No, it chooses to use the word, and it across, across different books and different people. It chooses the word "asleep," and that's mm-hmm. something you never hear or rarely hear. I would say about those who've died and gone to heaven, um, but yet right. that's the that's the kind of New Testament word for it. I mean, I think a, another way
1: of thinking about asleep, um, you know, is maybe the concept of rest,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, I think. Um, in Revelation, you know that passage. is oftentimes used in funerals. Is you know blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, and they will rest from their labors, mm-hmm. which is really a very beautiful thing, isn't Indeed. it? Uh, yes. The long, the longer we live, and the older that we we get, and the more we experience, you know, the carnage of of this world, the thought of resting mm. um, from our labors is a really um, beautiful and attractive thing, but you know, guys, to to our point, you know, this this image of sleep isn't the only image in the New Testament because the New Testament uh, uses language about uh, those who die in the Lord that they're with Christ, and this is stated in numerous places. Um, maybe the the clearest and strongest is you know Paul um, speaking to the Philippians, and he says for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. And then he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body and so, you know, there's a couple of things I think we can, can draw from this. One is that the experience of believers who have died um, is, is not complete unconsciousness. It's not like any lack of awareness. Um, it, it doesn't mean that they're comatose. It doesn't mean that their bodies are in some deep freeze unit until, you know, the resurrection comes. That's not the picture at all. Mm. It says they're, they're, they're with Christ. There's a sense of nearness to Christ. And there's a sense of uh, of comfort to that. But, you know, as we've said all along in the Bible reset, the Bible is not a systematic theology <laughs> book. It doesn't always iron out the details. And so, you know, we have to kind of hold on to these two points and, uh, you know, acknowledge that there's a bit of tension here. Uh, believers who have died or asleep or they're resting and yet at the same time, there seems to be a keen awareness of being with Christ. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. And and again, the beauty of this is that that heaven as we think of it then is it is surrounded by a sense of confidence and peace. And so the victory of Christ over the power of sin and death, it has. It has taken away the sting of death for those, you know, who die in the Lord. That is part of our blessed hope. And this experience, you know, cannot be like what the First Testament describes as the joyless existence of those, you know, who were in Sheol. And Jesus, you know, um, says to this rebel on the cross, um, who has just had his, his first kind of awareness that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he says to him, you know, today, you will be with me in paradise and your know, paradise is the Jewish way of describing the realm of the blessed dead. So I think we could you know, say this and be very confident of this, that however we think of heaven, that it is, it's a state of blessedness. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Right. And that's good. That's really, I mean, that's really clear in the text. And so we can be very confident in saying that And we just have to put these pieces together kind of the way the new Testament does. All right, so then the third thing I think we conclude from the New Testament is that the dead in Christ continue to share in the fundamental tension of the present evil age. And this is, I think, the thing that really is new to people, um, this idea that they're still experiencing a waiting and attention, in a sense. Um, they're with Christ, they're asleep, um, but they are still in time, and they experience the benefits of the victory of Christ that already is, have won. Yet they are still waiting and looking for what they do not yet have, right? They are longing for their own resurrection, and they don't have it yet, and finding their place in God's new creation. So the already-but-not-yet reign of God that characterizes our experience as the living also describes those who have died. We see this in the descriptions in Revelation of those who were martyred for God, where it describes their spirits as being under the altar— Um, Maybe that's a visionary way of describing their sleep. Um, And they're still longing for God's justice to be brought to the earth. How long they cry out. I haven't heard a song on contemporary Christian radio about martyrs crying how long, (laughs) right, while they're in heaven, you know, waiting for God's justice to be done on earth. Mm, Um, mm. They're not exactly dancing for joy under the altar, Um, And they're not oblivious to the evil and suffering that's happening on earth. So that should, should, I mean, shape, I think, our understanding of what's happening in this picture in the New Testament. Or, I mean, even think of the example of Jesus himself. He's raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. And then he asks Saul, the violent enemy of early Christian believers, why is he persecuting Jesus himself? So Jesus is in heaven. But he's identifying with the ongoing suffering of his body on earth, the church. So the sufferings of Jesus are not yet complete, because our suffering is his suffering. This is why Paul can say to the Colossians that his own suffering as an evangelist fills up what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That is a remarkable statement to read in the New Testament, that the sufferings of Christ have yet to be filled up, and they are filled up by the suffering of his people on earth. So Jesus is also looking forward to the day of his return and the implementation of his final victory over evil. All right, let's see if we can put this all together. So when we think of the phrase dying and going to heaven, we should incorporate all three of these elements. The dead in Christ are asleep, they are close to Christ and aware of that, And they are waiting to share in the resurrection of the dead and the final victory over evil. That's what it means to be in heaven now. That's what the scriptures tell us. And um, if we go beyond that, and we just have to realize anything more that we say is really a kind of a speculation and going beyond what the Bible really teaches.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is all really good and helpful, Glenn, I think. And... Even though there is a good deal of mystery here and a lot of gaps that we would prefer to fill in, I think what we do get out of scripture is much more congruent, I would say, with the the final vision of this new creation and life after life after death. You know, this idea that you might die and be with Christ, but you're also not oblivious to the state of the the physical world. You know, the fact that you're not just totally right. disconnected from um this place that god had originally called good and will one day make good again um it just feels a lot more congruent to me so really quickly though i know this stuff is probably brand new to some of our listeners and maybe a little bit disorienting and it's not like this prevailing view of heaven that that is more commonly held today was just spun up out of nothing and out of nowhere I think there is a number of passages in the Bible that seem to support it. And so some listeners may be wondering, you know, what about this or what about that? And so I'm thinking we should maybe just quickly look at a couple of them. We don't have nearly enough time to go go through all of them, Um, but maybe look at a couple of them and you can kind of explain what's going on in those two passages. Does that work?
2: Yeah, I think that'll, that'll be fine.
0: Cool. All right. So I think the first one that comes to mind is from John's gospel where Jesus says, My father's house has many rooms, and some older translations render this as many mansions. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So what's the deal here?
2: Yeah, okay. So this is John's gospel, of course. It's the beginning of the farewell discourse, which goes on for a long period in John's gospel. And It's this last kind of testament that Jesus gives to his disciples before his death. Um, it's interesting, and it's, it's striking language. Um, first of all, just to quickly dismiss the mansions piece, that was an accurate word to use when the King James Bible was written, because mansions back in the day didn't mean what we mean by it today. It's an example of how English language has changed. When the word mansions was translated in the 1611 King James Bible, it simply meant rooms. It meant a modest dwelling place. It didn't, it's an example of a word that's completely changed its meaning over time and doesn't mean what we mean by mansion. So our translations should not use it because it's not accurate anymore. Uh, It really is rooms. That's what the word means there. So, I would say this whole passage is an example of why it's so crucial to read the Bible in context and not try to understand isolated verses by themselves. So, we see this same phrase, my father's house, appearing earlier in the same book in John's gospel. And there, it's a clear reference to the temple, right? In that Hmm. passage, Jesus himself is referred to as the new temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And he's talking about his own body. And the, the, the passage is all in the context of Jesus going into the table and upturning the, the tables of those who were um, buying and selling things in God's temple, in my father's house, as it's called. So we have to realize that we're, when, when later in John's Gospel, when he says, my father's house has many rooms, the first thing we should think about is the temple, right, where God's house was on earth not in Mm -hmm. heaven. And not to mention that the whole Gospel of John begins with a tabernacle reference. For the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the word there is actually the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. So the whole Gospel opens with these two stories about temple and tabernacle, which is all about the reunification of heaven and earth. That's what temples and tabernacles were. God finding a place to dwell with his people again on earth in a unified creation like what he wanted at the very beginning of the story. So I think what this means is, you know, this big idea that Jesus is promising to his disciples is that God wants to make his home, his presence here with us, just as it was at the beginning in the garden. It's also worth noting that my father's house, the temple, was filled with images of the creation, land, sea, and sky, as was the tabernacle. So this is Hmm. not a passage about Jesus going to heaven and then taking us to heaven. In the Bible, God's house is the tabernacle, then it's the temple, and then it's Jesus, and then it's us, and then in Revelation, it's the entire new creation. There's this evolving meaning of the word, my father's house, or what the temple was. So when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us, I think the best understanding of that is that it's the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth and the new creation. John records Jesus saying here, I will come back and take you to be with me. So it's really clear this is not a reference to what happens to us when we die, because Jesus explicitly says, this will happen when I come back and take you to be with me. So I think, it, I think it actually corresponds with what we've been saying today. The return of Christ is when we will make our home with God and find our place in the rooms or the places, the dwellings of his new creation. Um, this is the new and final temple when his presence fills the whole universe and he lives with us and we live with him. Mm. Kind of long, I apologize, but I felt like we needed to mm-hmm. get the context
0: yeah, no, that's helpful.
2: Uh, it's good, and and
1: Glenn, I mean, it it really is. I mean, your description is is different than you know the old hymn. You know, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, right. and you kind know, of the picture that many of us have yeah. had that we were going from this life straight to Disney, yep. <laughs> and we were going to have our castle, you know, our own personal castle, and so forth, and 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 that that concept is not. Illegitimate, except it it probably has a greater chance of coming true in the final restoration. Exactly <laughs> of uh, of all things. Well, here here's another uh, passage that people may ask about. Um, this is in um, Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul writes, "Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. or we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say." that we would be that we would prefer to be away from the body and at home in the Lord. What do we make of that? Glenn? Yeah,
2: well I think it's very very similar to the language of the Philippians passage that we read, right? Where Paul says he desires to depart and be with Christ. And here to the Corinthians he says I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I think it really doesn't challenge anything that we said earlier. Um When our spirits go to heaven, we are away from the body and we are with Christ. Paul says he's ready for that, right? Why is Paul so ready for that? I would just think it's worth remembering, right? He's writing this. This is a quote from 2 Corinthians where he's told us, just catch all this, his extreme suffering, hard-pressed on every side, beaten down, persecuted, shipwrecked, put in prison, constantly in danger, gone without food, without sleep. I mean, the man is tired, and it's just fine with him if the Lord calls him mm-hmm. home. Really, he's been suffering. Um, but we have mm-hmm. to remember, this is the same Paul who describes the bigger hope for us in Colossians, at the end of 1 Corinthians, right? These, these big, grand visions of the restoration of the whole creation. That's his bigger hope, even though he would be just fine with, with leaving the body and going home to be comforted and resting in the presence of the Lord." So again, it's not that these two stages are fighting for attention. I think they're both good, right? It's just that the final hope is the bigger, grander thing. Um, But there's no question, for those who are suffering, there is immediate relief in dying. The sting of death has been taken away. They're blessed. They're in the presence of Christ. And it's a very good thing. It's, it's not that these two visions of the end or two stages have to fight with each other. Um, the, one is, well, the one is good, and the second one is the greater good. It's the big goal. It's the, it's the ending of the story that the story is longing for. All right. I think we should probably wrap this whole thing up. Um, I just wanted to say, I think one of the main takeaways from this whole discussion is that we should reorient our perspective. I mean the traditional way of thinking about our future centers on going to a new and better place transferring our existence from earth to heaven I think one big takeaway from our exploration today should we should be that we adjust this perspective the new testament's description of our future hope is centered on a new time not so much a new place the return of Christ and the age to come so rather than moving to a new place the big idea in the bible is that place itself will be transformed. The Bible's name for this is a new heavens and a new earth. It's a reunification of what had been separated because of sin. So it is not Hmm. wrong, of course, to desire to be with Christ when we die. Jane talked about that in her last days. Um, But Hmm. our hope should be focused on the coming of Jesus himself, the reuniting of heaven and earth that will be associated with his appearance, and our own resurrection from the dead in the glorious age that is still ahead of us. I just think it's it really comes down to keeping these two stages clear and putting our emphasis on the second one because that's exactly what the New Testament does,
0: yeah, well, thank you guys for this conversation. I know we went a little bit over time today, but there's a lot to unpack here and uh, And I think it's a really important conversation for the christian Christian community because Our ultimate hope is just, it's such a close thing to our hearts. Mm -hmm. It's held so closely to, to our innermost, um, innermost desires, innermost beings. And so I think it's important to have a hope that's solidly grounded in scripture rather than just a tradition that's developed over time. And personally, I find what we've talked about today to be a more compelling and exciting vision for the future than what's normally taught. So, um, I know we only scratched the surface on this topic, Mm. I'll link uh, to a couple of books in the show notes that you can check out if you want a little bit deeper dive on this topic. But uh, that's going to wrap it up for us for now. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work. You can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.